Rainforest Café with Dennis McKenna. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Casey McFarland, and you are tuning in to the very first episode of the Brain Forest Cafe with Dennis McKenna. It is an absolute honor to be here today with two trailblazing legends, Dennis McKenna and Graham Hancock. Dennis is an ethnobotanist, lecturer, and author. He is also a founding board member of the Hefter Research Institute. Most recently, Dennis has founded the McKenna Academy of Natural Philosophy in 2019. Graham is an international best-selling author and journalist with a strong interest and passion for the ancient past. His most recent work, Ancient Apocalypse, can be found on Netflix. It is a TV series investigating the possibility of an ancient advanced civilization by traveling to various archaeological sites around the globe. Thank you very much, Graham, for being present with us here today. That's my pleasure. Looking forward to it. Welcome, Graham. It's uh, nice to see you again. I wish we could do it in person, but uh, we're not allowed that. So, last time was in Yorkshire at the end of last late last year, wasn't it? The, that's the right, and that was that was quite a convocation. Uh, yeah, that's right. I want to get into that maybe a little bit later, but I wanted to uh, first of all, I wanted to thank you and or you know, congratulate you on the Netflix series, thank uh, you. which uh, I think that's, I mean, it, I, I watched it and of course, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by your work, so I don't, I don't need convincing. I, I, I think, I think it's very hard to make these complex issues accessible to a public that's, that's largely uneducated about these things, you know, and, and you you've done an excellent job and you've got a lot of pushback of course that seems to me that comes with the territory uh i was i was reading your your response to the american association of uh, archaeologists or american archaeological association oh, uh, american archaeology yeah the saa right I thought your response was was you know measured and masterful, and I think I think it it pointed out some of the you know some some of the shadows in their assumptions, right? I mean, for example, they're accusing you of white supremacy and and marginalizing indigenous people, and then if you look at the demographics of the organization, it's seventy one percent white. Yes, so you know. Largely white males, yes. And white males as well, yes, yes. Very really hypocritical position to take, but also, but also a straw man. I mean, this is what I what I I, I realized in the the rather concerted um, attack that was made following the release of Ancient Apocalypse by actually not a huge number of archaeologists, but by a number of archaeologists who are very vocal on these issues and um, who have a, a, a very fixed and definite view of the past. Uh, and that fixed and definite view includes the notion that, uh, that they can rule out any possibility of a, of a lost civilization. Um, and therefore, therefore the, the, what I found myself involved in is a kind of ideological war um, over, the, over the past. Uh, and, and in which in which the tools of ideology were primarily being used rather than rational and reasonable argument. So 
uh, I'm dealing with an, uh, with an institution in archaeology that has a very fixed idea about the past. Uh, I'm not saying that every archaeologist shares it, but they all subscribe to it in one way or another. And somehow this series of mine directly conflicted uh, with that idea. And what was disappointing to me was the very low level of the criticism. There was, a, there was very loud, there was a massive amount of it. It all repeated essentially the same three or four basic themes as though somebody was reading from a, from a cheat sheet. Uh, and there was no real grappling with the with the material. Uh, it was just as though we are figures of authority, and we can just dismiss you by saying you're wrong. You know, that's not something that should happen in science. That's something that happens in in cults. And uh, uh, you have made the case, uh, and I think there's there's evidence to support it that sadly archaeology is very much closer to a cult than it is than it is science. I, I mean, the very nature of science is that you you question your assumptions, you know, yeah. and you always work from the from the understanding that in understanding that is incomplete. You know, we do not have a complete picture of the past, particularly the ancient past. And it seems that for archaeology to assume that, you know, to act as though well, this is all a settled matter, you know, it's all been decided and we don't, we're not open to questioning about a section of a period of human history about which very little is known, you know, as you, as you pointed out in your, in your letter, there are potentially hundreds of thousands of, of hectares of inundated land that predate the uh, the sea level rise, precipitated most probably by the Younger Dryas event. Yeah, and the, the whole general meltdown of the end of the ice age and the raising of sea levels by four hundred feet. Um, it's a point. It's a it's a broader point um, that that that's the, the reaction of archaeology as an institution to to my age apocalypse series is: we are archaeologists. We know that there's no possibility of a lost civilization. So. Even by suggesting that there could have been a lost civilization, you, Hancock, are somehow misleading uh, the, 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 the viewers, as though I'm not even allowed to express that, that concept or that idea. But, the, but beyond, beyond that, the point is that there are huge areas of the world that archaeology simply has not looked at. Mm -hmm. um, the, the amount of archaeology that's been done in the Amazon rainforest is incredibly small. Um, I mean, for understandable reasons. I'm not saying no archaeology has been done. But, but but what's been done, given that that we've still got five or six million square kilometers of rainforest left, uh, and, and uh, the tiny amount of archaeology that has been done is revealing the most extraordinary discoveries in the Amazon. Um, same goes for the Sahara Desert. You know, it was green at several periods during the Ice Age. And again, because it's very tough place to work, very expensive place to work, very little archaeology has been done. And then, as you rightly say, the submerged continental shelves, you know, an enormous area of the earth. Really, the only archaeology that's being done is looking at sort of medieval shipwrecks and not, not really because they already convinced themselves that there's no need to look for anything else of interest. The idea that there might be actual physical ruins on a large scale underwater doesn't seem worth investing money in from an archaeological point of view because they've already decided that there's nothing to find. And so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yet somebody like me, just on my own finances, with Sartha, 
uh, spending seven years scuba diving all around the world, we found a load of stuff uh, un underwater, which fishermen and local divers were aware of, you know. Right. So, so clearly, you know, you're not funded by large institutions or anything on your journalist salary and as an independent person. I mean, you had the temerity and go look at these places, you know, yeah. I mean, you made these many dives and, and, you know, this is what I uh, like and admire about your approach. It's not that you're just dreaming this stuff up, you know, although you've been accused of that. I think one of your more gaming critics says, you know, your information comes from through revelation. Well, that's another conversation, but in fact, yeah. You're just making the case to the archaeological community and to the rest of the world that, hey, if you look, there's evidence here. I mean, there's a lot of evidence, and the and the Netflix documentary brought brought attention to some of it. You know, yeah. what I had a problem with with the documentary, and and it's it's impossible to avoid uh, your. You know, because it is a mass, it's directed to the masses. It's a mass media product directed toward people that are not educated. But what it, and so what it, it leads in a certain sense is that your scholarship, which is impe impeccable and meticulous and extensive, it's not going to be accessible to somebody in a Netflix series. People actually have to read your books. And I've read, you know, your key books that talk about this. And then if you if you look at that and digest that, then it's very, uh, very much harder to be dismissive of, of this evidence, you know. Uh, you bring through, you bring together many different threads, right, ranging from genetics to, of course, the archaeological evidence. And so why do you think the... I mean, maybe it's a naive question. Maybe the answer is obvious, but but uh, you know, why is the archaeological community, institutional archaeologic archaeology, so so threatened by this? Well, they were they, they were already angry with my books, and in fact, archaeologists have been angry with me for thirty years. Um, and, and you know, the, it's, some of the critics of the ancient apocalypse accused me of declaring war on archaeology. But as a matter of fact, archaeology declared war on me uh, the moment I published Fingerprints of the Gods uh, and has been in, in, in just unmitigated, unceasing assaults on my character and on my personality and on, and on, and, 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 uh, on my qualities as a human being by archaeologists, you know, who haven't even read my work. Um, so, so they were angry already by the books and why were they angry, angered by the books? Because the books actually reached pretty large numbers of people, millions of people, as a matter of fact, if the books had reached 500 people or even 10,000 people, they wouldn't have bothered. But because the books, the books were, were reaching large audiences, uh, uh, uh and, and, um, presenting a narrative, which is contrary to the mainstream narrative of archeology. span uh, this immediately began. This this sparked off this kind of immune reaction to the to the name Hancock amongst archaeologists. So they they don't need to read my work. They don't need to look at anything because they already know uh, that I'm enemy number one. And 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 um, you know this is the. But then with Netflix, it, the, with the the magnitude suddenly increases by by sort of order of ten, uh, and there's this huge numbers of people who weren't familiar with my work who are now 
who are now seeing this work. And I think archaeologists felt very threatened by it. Ultimately, I think it's about control of the narrative. Um, these are a group of, of so-called professionals uh, who bond together in professional bodies like the Society for American Archaeology, who have their own hierarchy uh, and their own um, methods of obtaining kudos and status within that, within that system. Uh, and uh, they, they reacted to me as though I was some kind of virus that was was threatening the whole the whole system and and, uh, and and this kind of swarming reaction which is designed to do harm to me by whatever means just just do harm to this person who we see as an enemy and and, and actually it doesn't it doesn't matter what we say as long as it's harmful let's pick some of the words that are harmful in our culture today oh let's call him a racist let's say he's a white supremacist the fact that race isn't mentioned in the series makes no difference if we can just stick those labels on this person, then we're going to harm him. And if we harm him, we'll make him weaker. That's the kind of obnoxious logic that, that underlies the archaeological reaction to this. And of course, I realized that for many decades, that was also the kind of twisting of reality that came with the way that, that uh, the, the, the mainstream reacted to psychedelics, you know. Psychedelics <laughs> objected to an ideological war. Were, were, were presented as dangerous, as, 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 as harmful. All kinds of lies were told about psychedelics. It's you know, a very similar, it's a very parallel situation, you know. I keep thinking, uh, as you're talking about this, you know, I, I, in the back of my mind, the, the spool of my, one of my favorite quotes from Schopenhauer, not that I read a lot of Schopenhauer, but his observation on truth. All truth goes through three stages, he says. First, it is ridiculed. Second, it is violently opposed. That's the state you're in right now. Finally, it's accepted as self-evident. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and what's happened with uh, psychedelics is a good example of that. You know, the information has always been out there that they have benefits, that they're therapeutic, that, yeah. you know, and the same with archaeology. You know, uh, I mean, people are People, uh, you know, in the archaeological, institutional archaeology are probably discomforted by the fact that there are huge gaps of knowledge, you know, and so rather than try to fill those gaps to explore what's there, to do their job, essentially, which is to explore these things, it's easier just to obfuscate and to pile opprobrium on people like yourself who are saying, well, wait a minute, I'm not a professional archaeologist, but I'm an intelligent person. I'm an honest journalist. I can see for myself, you know, what the evidence is. I can, anyone can go out and look at this. And I've yeah. looked at this evidence and it suggests that there was in fact a much more advanced you know, maritime situation that may date back. I mean, it, it would have to date back well before the Younger Dryas, which is the event that kind of put put an end to the whole thing, you know. And this is, um, you know, this is a, an a, apparently an abhorrent notion to, to, to archaeology. And, and if they had indeed conducted detailed archaeology in every part of the world, if they had thoroughly investigated the continental shelves, if they knew absolutely the archaeology of the Sahara and the and, and the Amazon, then they might have a better case. But at the moment, they just haven't done enough work, uh, and 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 that isn't science. That's a the, to, to to draw fixed and firm conclusions from a work in progress. 
uh, is uh, you know is is a huge mistake, and that's and that's that's what's that's what's happening here. But the thing is that what I object to very strongly is the is, is um, 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 with archaeology as an institution is this claim or suggestion that they are the sole arbiters of the human past, that, that we do not listen to anybody else, that anybody else who expresses any kind of point of view on the human past, if it differs from the narrative being given by the mainstream, that that person must not be listened to. Um, there are occasions where quote-unquote amateurs offer something that archaeologists adopt, and they will adopt it enthusiastically as long as it does not contradict one of their mainstream, one of their main narratives. But if it contradicts a narrative, they will utterly reject it, uh, and 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 will do so vehemently and in and in extremely ugly ways. And it's only really as time passes, as was the case with psychedelics, and as more and more information comes out, that it becomes absurd to hold such a position. Uh, as it became absurd to hold that position about psychedelics, and I hope we see the the absurdity of the archaeological position exposed uh, in my lifetime. I'm not confident of that, but uh, I hope I do. Well, I hope I hope you uh, I hope you live long. I hope you live a long time, Graham, and I hope you live long enough to make make them eat a big plate of crow. Because what you've described is exactly what happens. It seems when institutions become ossified, they they become you know, constrained by received doctrine, by dogma, actually. And that's not what science is about. So science, that's anti-science. Science always should work in the, you know, in the light of the perception that they don't have a complete picture and new information can come along at any time and completely overturn your, your accepted paradigms and so on. That's what makes it exciting. That's how... That's how knowledge advances, you know. And so it's disappointing uh, to see this, but again, not surprising. I mean, it's a, you know, on the academic level, it's sort of the, uh, the you know, it's, it's, I mean, a little more genteel, but you see the much the same thing happening in the political discourse, you know. You repeat lies enough, people begin to actually believe them. It look, mistakes that you know, we've managed to completely flummox you know a third to a quarter you know a quarter to a third of the electorate that believes that the election was rigged and all of this nonsense you know and it's it makes me it saddens me Graham because people do not think for themselves that that at the core of and at the core of what we're talking about, it's people's desire to abdicate their ability to think for themselves. This is what religion does, you know. I mean, religion, an organized religion, does very much the same thing. Like, hey, we have the answers. Just as long as you don't stop asking, don't keep asking these pesky questions. Just, just accept the articles of the faith. A module that can be slotted into the brain. You don't have to ask any questions. Here's all the answers. That's absolutely true of religion, and uh, unfortunately, it's becoming more and more true of science as well, is that science is being spoken of in religious terms, that yes. science has all the answers, uh, and that there are no other answers to, to find. And science is a wonderful method of exploring certain aspects of reality, 
But there are other aspects of reality that are much harder to explore with science. And that's, again, that touches on the, on the issue of, uh, of, 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 of psychedelics. But we should never have, we should never have unquestioning faith in science. Well, faith is totally out of place. That's the thing. I mean, as I often say in my raps about, about psychedelics, faith is an impediment. Faith is not required to take a psychedelic. What is required is courage. Yeah, you know, that's right. Part of that is putting your assumptions aside, yeah. opening yourself to whatever the experience is, and uh, and then dealing with that. You know, uh, so it takes courage. Faith is a set of, as I understand it, a set of assumptions, pre-existing assumptions, without evidence. So it's anti-science. Science, and it's the abdication, abdication of responsibility to think for oneself, which is what it comes down to. Which is the, which is one of the huge problems in the world today. Um, and it's very ironic, really, is that we have, we, we, in a sense, have all the tools available for people really to think for themselves. But actually, it's not, it's not happening. There's, a, there's, there's a, there's a tendency to, to discourage uh, independent thought and to, and, and to, you know lock people into different blocks of thought and ideas and you know i belong to this group and you belong to that group and but we're all fucking human beings you know it's, and it's, any number of people willing to pander to that you know because they see their control of these demographics these different silos that's their path to fame and fortune and notoriety and all that but it's it's fundamentally dishonest and it's true what you're saying that uh Institute, I mean, science is a beautiful thing, you know. Yeah. Pure science, as you say, and I agree, it, 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 it's just a tool. It's a tool for ans asking questions of nature in a very systematic way, getting answers back that can be more or less verified, or, you know, do they, do the answers explain the data or not? And it, the, the the you know the result is in it is always we need more data because every everything we understand is an incomplete picture so uh, uh, you know I, I think there are scientists who practice pure science but but then it is becoming increasingly difficult for science to to retain that purity because it's an institution. It depends on grants. It depends on academic prestige. It, it depends on all of this infrastructure to to make it work. I mean, we're we're far beyond the the you know era of the gentleman scientist like Darwin or Mendel who could go out in his garden and contemplate you know the the nature of inheritance and so on. Now you need a hundred and fifty million dollar grant to look into these things so, or some. Some do. So it's it's a quandary. I, I do, I mean, as a scientist, um, I do have admiration for for pure science and dismay at the way it's essentially been distorted and and misused. And and well, I think one of if I, if I may come in there, one of the ways that it's been misused um, is that very notion that it does have or ultimately will have all the answers to everything. Um, that is, to, to my mind, that is a, is a misuse of science and, and particularly 
I think Rupert Sheldrake calls it this physical physicalist bias in science that things mm -hmm. things have to be material in nature in order to be really grasped and handled by science. So things like entity encounters in in uh, a, a DMT experience, uh, while they can be quantified to a certain extent, it's very hard to explain. It's very hard to you can't really weigh and measure them. Um, you can't dissect them. Uh, and yet they're there and they're and they're real. So I think that the limits of the scientific method are tested by uh, psychedelic experiences, by by visionary experiences, but not only by those. Then there's all, all the other questions that we've never really resolved, which physically scientists dismiss, such as telepathy or telekinesis, the, whether these powers are present in the human mind in some way, and we're just not using them. These are all no-go areas for mainstream mm -hmm. science. Uh, you get laughed at if you think about the look at the terrible problems that Rupert Sheldrake has had over the years just for, for for doing very reasonable scientific work on telepathy. You know, it's this ruling out of whole areas of inquiry on the basis of preconceived notions about the nature of reality. That's a huge problem in science. Uh, and this is exactly what's going on in archaeology. And you write so when it, I I'm glad you brought up the question of the DMT entities, uh, you know, I, I, I knew we would get here sooner or later. We, you and I were just recently at this rather amazing conference in the UK last October. So, uh, what do you make of all this? I've never known exactly what to make of it since I first started having those encounters myself. Um, and which, which, um, in many ways, much is owed to your wonderful late brother, Terence, um, that, that I became familiar with the issue of, of ayahuasca at all. Um, but uh, my, my, my first encounters, entity encounters, did, did take place in the Amazon rainforest drinking, drinking ayahuasca and subsequently have, have continued with, uh, with vapes and smoked DMT. Um, the, they're compellingly real. As, as everybody who's volunteered in the, I mean, this is what's fantastic is that actually, I believe at Johns Hopkins and certainly at Imperial College in London, this work is now being done to, to try and investigate what is going on with the entity encountered. The remarkable thing is, you know, I can speak of my personal experiences, you can speak of yours, but, but what the research seems to be showing is that people are, are reporting back the same kinds of encounters and experiences with the same kind of entities. And normally when there's enough testimony of an encounterary experience, we have to begin to suspect that it's real. And uh, it seems to me that's that's the case. That's where we're at with these encounters as well. And have they brought novelty into human society over the years? One of one of the reasons I got into researching the book that was that was published in 2005 called Supernatural was the work done by Professor David Lewis Williams at the University of Witwatersrand in South Africa, uh -huh. uh, comprehensively proving that, that, that cave and rock art all around the world is fundamentally visionary art. Uh, and it has, it has an astonishing amount in common with the art that is being produced uh, in, in the Amazon uh, by, by, by people who've had the ayahuasca, uh, the, the ayahuasca journey. And this art shows entities, and these entities are teachers, and people learn from them. We, know you both, we both know of scientists who claim to have had sudden insights during... Uh, during a psychedelic journey that have changed the whole way that they that they look at things. So there's something very mysterious going on. Is it just that it 
that it releases locked down functions in the brain and allows the brain to function more more generously or or are we really in contact with other dimensions i'm still not settled on that uh, but i i prefer the i prefer the other dimensions idea personally why is that i just do i just like the idea that there's a doorway in the mind that we can that we can open and and, and we're perfect we're beautifully evolved to fit in this physical universe but it doesn't mean our minds have to be confined to this physical universe and what psychedelics at the at the peak level seem to offer is a doorway into some other into some other level of reality and 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 it's it's deeply mysterious and i and i cannot i cannot begin to explain it and i don't think anybody can uh but but i know that my life has been has been fuller that i've had that i've been privileged to to enjoy an ongoing adventure, which I would have missed if I had not had these experiences. And right. I don't know where that adventure is going to lead yet. Well, they, yes, they, uh, so, you know, in, in discussing these, these entities and these encounters, it's, I think you have a person has to be very careful how we throw these words around, you know, simple words like real, you know, I mean, I, I start from the premise that anything you experience is real, you know, you experience it, therefore it's real. But then we can begin the conversation, okay, does it, is it, uh, does it come from the unconscious? Is it something within the mind that presents itself as not being in the mind? Or is there really something, some entity, some dimension out there? Yeah. You know where these things are happening, but then dimension has a very pretty precise uh, definition, and fi- you know you have to drag the physicists into this. And how are they going to explain yeah. this? Or is it some like you know hypothetical uh, uh, you know spiritual place? Is it you know? I mean, here that that's to me that's the question. I I think that. Uh, not that the information that you get from these encounters are is not valuable. Clearly, it is. Well, quite often it's not, and quite often it's not. Right? <laughs> exactly. So it's kind of like ordinary life. You know, you there's only so many so many things you can you you can take away from it. Uh, uh, but uh, I mean, does it even matter whether it's real in the sense that there's another place out there? Uh, you know, somewhere in hyperspace, or whether it's maybe in the collective unconscious, or maybe the part of the the brain that's normally inaccessible to us. But they are, uh, you know, whether it's these things, whichever of those we settle on, is uh, going to be important in determining what what questions we ask going forward. You know. I mean, my brother used to, you know, go through this exercise too. He would take large doses of mushrooms by himself. And, you know, with ayahuasca and mushrooms, how you can set up this I-thou kind of separation where you actually seem to be in telepathic communication with an entity that isn't you, as far as you know, and that that you're having this conversation. He would always try to say, well, Tell me something I can't possibly know, you know. Tell me something I can't possibly know, and then I'll know that you're real. 
Yeah. But it's a conundrum because how do you do define what you can't possibly know because you can't possibly know it? You know, so you get it. You get into a, a kind of a epistemological problem. And why would the entity want to prove that it's real anyway? Um, it, it, it's a trickster, you know. It might, uh, it might not be. This is the mystery. This is the mystery that we're grappling with. In a sense, you ask, does it matter? And in a sense, it doesn't matter. Um, what I think what matters uh, is that this is a, a, a mystery that is worthy of much further investigation than it than it has had in Western cultures. Of course, it's a mystery that's been deeply investigated by shamanistic cultures for thousands right. of years um, and has led to certain conclusions. I'm convinced that it's what led to the conclusions that the ancient Egyptians came to about the afterlife, uh, about about what happens to us after death, the journey of the soul through the through the duat, the, the challenges that are, that are faced, the, the, the um, passwords that you need to know the entities that you encounter who are very often therianthropic. A lot of this is is definitely, when I look at the ancient Egyptian Book of the Dead or the Book of What is in the Duat, I, I'm looking at visionary experiences for sure. I, th I think they were in a targeted way exploring whatever that realm, whatever that realm is. And and kind of that's now what's happening at Imperial College, you know, but, 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 but with a very medical model, which is essential in our <laughs> society. There's no other way they're going to get permission to do it. Um, but at least they are, you know, they are in depth exploring the, the phenomenology of this of this experience. And it's just like, you know, if we discovered a new continent on Earth that we haven't actually ever, nobody had ever been to before, um, and it was inhabited by intelligent beings, we we definitely want to know what's going on there. Uh, and not, life, basically. Or not, basically. Yeah, that's the other thing. We could say, no, actually, this isn't good. Let's, let's leave them to their own thing, or, or maybe they're vastly more powerful than us, and we'd better stay away from them. Yeah. You know. given, given the reaction of institutions to these discoveries, like, oh no, we you know we need to we need to sweep this under the rug. This doesn't agree with the accepted paradigm. But but the, I, I mean I mean one of the beautiful things about psychedelics, I think, is that they are they are disruptors. They are catalysts for conscious change, and both in individuals and on the societal level and even on the species level. Uh, and so in that sense, you know, they're very useful because, uh, again, the, you know, it, it seems to me that the, what drives knowledge, whether it's scientific or other types of knowing, is curiosity mm -hmm. and impulse to understand what's going on with these phenomena and psychedelics open the question open the door wide on the question of well what you think is going on is probably not what's going on you know there's so much else uh happening that that normally you know we're we're opaque to because the brain is you know the default mode network and all that the brain is programmed to filter most of this stuff out under ordinary circumstances because it's not you know it's not helping us you know uh with our material existence it's not uh, adding to the value of our 401ks or whatever it's you know these are these are questions that come up just and and are worthy of pursuit just because just because they're unknown, you know, and, and and every effort to push knowledge back is a little bit of light shed on, you know, what is a, essentially we're surrounded by a sphere of the unknown. But, 
you know, uh, we ne- we're never going to go, we're never going to answer the final questions, but we can add to what we know. And that's, you know, this is something that psychedelics always consistently remind me of that, you know, you people, you scientists, especially there's no room for arrogance. You need to constantly remind yourself how little we know, you know, yes. we, as a species, as an individual, we understand a tiny slice of reality, you know, and even that is subject to revision at every turn. That's, you know, if we're honest with our, with ourselves. So, so, uh, where do you think psychedelics are going to, how is this going to evolve? It's, it's, it, it certainly is a mixed thing. I mean, we've reached a point where, where we knew it was coming, you know, that, I mean, there was acceptance and then how do you see the current situation with, uh, psychedelics and society acceptance into medicine and those sorts of things? Well, I mean, the, the acceptance into medicine is the Trojan horse, which, which gets psychedelics into, into the rest of, in, in, into the rest of society. But of course, psychedelics are already in the rest of society. Right. Um, they are accessible. They, I mean, they grow f- freely in the fields in, many cases if you if you if you have enough knowledge of mushrooms to know one mushroom from another you know um they they're they've always been part of the, part of part of the human story but now we're getting to we we passed through what 60 years of the war on drugs 60 years of vile and vicious propaganda a hate campaigns marginalizing of groups who who, who showed any interest in so-called drugs whatsoever so that that legacy is still hanging on to to human consciousness right now. And then the next thing, of course, because we're run by governments and governments like to control things, is they're saying, well, we can't we can't keep the floodwaters at bay anymore. It's unreasonable. Uh, we're we're going to look stupid if we keep on denying any benefit from psychedelics. So now let's see how we can control it. And then they're going to impose all kinds of management structures on it. And, and you're going to have to go through an authorized professional, you know, and I'm not so happy about that. I don't, I'm not sure the authorized professional is the only way to go. Um, it, and it shouldn't be, you know, there should, there should, there should, so it takes great wisdom on the part of those who are making legislation around this subject, not to just turn it into a new form of restriction and, and, and not to allow certain, certain companies to get very rich on it either. Yeah, this that's exactly right. That's leading to these conundrums, you know. Well, if we can't control it, let's cash in. Yeah. You know? And then that leads to, you know, again, what we've always done is marginalize indigenous people who have been the stewards of these this yeah. genetics and this knowledge for so long. And, and you know, you'd think finally we would reach a point where we would say, you know, hey, you guys have been the stewards of this you need you deserve a place at the table yep. uh, a big place and some yep. companies are saying that and others are very very profit oriented you know yeah. but but uh yeah it's, it's it's very interesting uh uh the the evolution that's taking place i i'm totally agree with you i don't think that i think that the plants and fungi, the sacred psychoactive plants and fungi, are really the ho- common heritage of humanity. And access to them should not be 
restricted or, uh, you know, unduly. I think caution and, and education is very important. People should come to those things, you know, from an informed place, but their access should not be restricted and they shouldn't have to pay $50,000 to go to a clinic to yeah. get that kind of treatment, you know, then they that becomes the, you know, again, the, 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 the psychedelic tools are dominated by a, a corporate elite, essentially, a corporate and, and the medical industrial complex, once again, you know, takes it over and tries to co-opt it. They've done this many, many times. You know, you're familiar with the whole history of biopiracy, most of our food plants and many yeah, of yeah. our medicine plants. Absolutely. But these are different because these change people's minds. <laughs> Even CEOs, you know, may have their perspective shifted if, they, if they're not careful, you know. If they dabble deeply enough, they almost certainly will. And yeah. this is this is the this is why ultimately, despite all of the cautions that I've just emphasized, I'm 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 happy to see psychedelics re-entering civilization openly. Um, and and I I believe I do believe in the wisdom of the plants. It sounds like a very mystical thing to say, uh, but uh, I, I again this is it is a mystical thing to say. <laughs> but I think they know what they're doing in a certain way. There's some sort of co-evolutionary connection with human beings that's going on here. And, Absolutely. And Self-evidently true, you know. I mean, again, the the one of the primary messages that I've gotten from ayahuasca on numerous occasions is just remember, you monkeys only think you're running the show. Exactly. And, yeah. <laughs> and in fact, we're not. I mean, the, the, the community of, in terms of what is sustaining life on the planet, it's the community of, of photosynthetic organisms and fungal organisms that are their symbiotes that are keeping parameters within the fairly narrow limits tolerable for life. And of course, we we monkeys, we're pushing back on that in every way that we can, trying to to disrupt this. So this is this is this is concerning. I worry I, I don't worry about life on Earth. I mean, potentially, we control technologies that could like wipe out all life on Earth if it got completely out of hand. I worry more, but I think I think that Earth is very tough. I think that you know, life has extreme resilience, you know, and tends to maintain its equilibrium. I think our species is more vulnerable than like to than we would like to believe, and. Uh, we may be at risk. I mean, I guess very vulnerable. We could just be another one of those very short-term evolutionary experiments, mm -hmm. you know, which kind of runs its whole course within about a million years. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. exactly. And if you look at the time scales that the Earth operates on, that's a blink in yeah. the in in the you know that's a very short time, you know, which is another reason why I think that you're, the work that you're doing, you know, suggests, I mean, for example, we know that, I think the current thinking now is that Homo sapiens, neurologically modern humans, probably are about 300,000 years That's old. That's right. It used to be maybe 100,000, 
now that's been pushed back to to uh, around around three hundred thousands. So they had all the neurological and cognitive tools available to them, the, to, to ancient peoples as we do. Yeah. Why is it so crazy to think that they might have developed a you know a fairly sophisticated maritime astronomically based technology? 20,000 years ago, 30,000 years ago. And, and you know, part of the spin that the archaeologists who didn't like uh, the series put on this is that somehow my my series was taking credit away from indigenous peoples. Absolute rubbish. Quite the opposite of that. If there was a lost civilization, I see it as a civilization that emerged out of shamanism, as every other civilization on Earth did. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. It's just, there's just no doubt. All, <clears throat> everything that we call a civilization that we recognize as civilization has got shamanistic roots and those roots go way back uh, in into the past and all i'm saying is that within the diversity of shamanistic societies it's not absurd to consider a few who might have developed in different directions in in in, in other directions and so let's just keep an open mind to that you know but i think the fundamental the basement of all of this is shamanism and shamanism is, in its own way, a profoundly scientific enterprise. I mean, the, yes, you know, yes. As, oh, if you, the the, the, the the discoveries made by shamanistic cultures in the Amazon are quite extraordinary and and almost impossible to explain, actually, in many cases. Well, it's, yeah, I, I, it, it it is right. Shamanism is, in some ways, the first science in a certain yeah. because it yeah. was experimental. A lot of it, I mean. At, at at base, a lot of shamanism is people mucking around with plants. You know, what happens if we take this and that? Yeah. And, you know, what if we put it up our nose or up our bums? Or this is driven by scientific curiosity. Shamanism are experimental ethnopharmacologists. That's what I call them. You know, and uh, it's very experimentally. It, it's very experimentally based and. Uh, and but the interesting thing is it it's it's ancient enough it's it, that not only science came out of it but also theater and poetry yep. and all of these other things as well. I mean, shaman are are performers. They're show shaman or showman, you know, or show women. I mean, they're important. And you can yeah. say it's the origins of all culture, really. Um, and, 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 uh, you, you know, the amazing thing is that there, uh, that it wasn't just a stage in the evolution of human culture leading to us. It's still an ongoing reality in the world today. Shamanistic cultures coexist with Western industrialized societies today. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and there, there's the arrogance of the, of, of, of the technological societies that we act as though we have nothing to learn from these people, as though we owe them nothing. Whereas in fact, everything is owed. <laughs> And and huge amounts of to learn, particularly in the psychedelic sphere. Actually, if that's you asked the question about going forward with psychedelics, if it's going to happen in a healthy, positive way in Western technological societies, it's going to need input from from shamanistic culture. Yeah, I I agree. I think any paradigm going forward has got you know it can't be just the biomedical paradigm. Yeah. The shamanistic paradigm has worked fine for indigenous cultures, but as these cultures come together. You've got to have some kind of a hybrid hybrid approach to them. That psychotherapy and the best of shamanism. I I, I think the the psychedelic uh, 
you know, uh, the psychedelic therapy of the future is going to look a more, more like shamanism than it will to these clinical studies that are done. Not to dismiss those. I mean, they have to work with constraints, you know. I mean, they have the FDA and other regulatory bodies insisting they have to do it a certain way. But in yeah. some ways, I think the, uh, you know, the, the opportunity to really explore has got to be has to be undertaken under looser parameters and the shaman shamanistic uh approach with the ritual of the music and the sound and all this is the right vessel for that you know very well thought out very tested and tried over thousands of years you know right. it really it really does it really does work i'm not sure when i'm going to have my next uh, visionary journey um, I, I, uh, suspect sometime this year, but, uh, but, but I'm not sure when the last time I drank ayahuasca was 2019. Um, and, uh, Funny I feel I've got mention that that's the last time I took any psychedelic as well. <laughs> COVID got in the way. It could be. Well, I, I want to get back to it. I mean, things sort of shut down with COVID. There wasn't yeah. an opportunity to do it. And then in the last three years, I've discovered a few issues about my heart, so I had some some cardiac procedures recently, and uh, I'm not going to take stop taking psychedelics. At least I hope, but I'm going to be very cautious about what I take. I think perhaps like you know, five methoxy DMT and these things that raise the blood pressure. Maybe that's off limits for me now, but. I certainly, uh, I mean, I still think mushrooms are quite safe, and even ayahuasca to a certain extent. So I think I think ayahuasca is safe, but if you're if you're physically compromised, particularly if you've got heart issues, ayahuasca is very demanding physically. Mm -hmm. it's a, it's a, a, not not to not to say psychically as demanding as well, but but physically at that physical level, it's a very demanding medicine to take. Um, I think it's a little more, a little more demanding than, than mushrooms. Mushrooms. Oh, much more. Mushrooms yes. are just about the perfect psychedelic in terms of yeah. compatibility with human metabolism and, and all that. So, so I agree. Uh, but I, I haven't given it up, but I'm just waiting for the right opportunity, you know? So, um, that makes, that makes sense. I'm in no rush either myself. I've had a lot of ayahuasca experiences, quite a few, quite a few other experiences. I'm, I'm in mean, no rush to add to those. It's not like putting another notch on the belt or in the. Yeah, I, I'm long, long, long since past the, the stage where I mean, I never was a psychedelic cowboy, although I've been sort of mis, misportrayed that way. I'm actually a very cautious, but. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm I'm long past the stage where I have to try every new molecule or every new plant. I mean, that's for that's a younger person's game. They they can do it. I tell them I'll be watching closely. Send me a full report. <laughs> you know, so no, it's, in, it's in areas where where speaking personally, there are a few few areas where I still think I, that there's important work I need to do. I'm not in a rush, but I will do that work when the right time when yeah. the right comes. And the other thing I want to do, I just pray. This is my, this is something I'm just really hoping for, is that one day I'm going to come across the right combination of plant medicines that will get rid of my migraines forever. Because these these migraine headaches are just torture for me. They make my life 
miserable and I hate taking the big pharma medications for them. And then I discovered, and in fact, I discovered it at that conference we were at in October, that the big pharma medication is, is just a slightly tweaked version of DMT. When you can imagine the way right. my mind going after that. Well, what about microdosing uh, with yeah. LS? I mean, there's, you're aware of cluster busters. You're aware there's yeah. considerable, I mean, does any of that work for you? Small doses of LSD, psilocybin? Part, part of the problem with living in England is it's quite difficult to obtain necessary uh, ingredients, but not impossible. Um, and I, ha I have, I've not been consistent with microdosing. I've tried, I've tried a bit here and there, didn't see any magical results, got bored with it and stopped. Um, I think probably, probably what, you know, what I need is, is, is one very major psilocybin journey at some point. This is what I'm hearing about migraines is that that's, that, that big journey is very important. Microdosing, yes, that's important too, as a sort of maintenance, but there's some sort of breakthrough possibility. And I, I do know people who've had migraines helped with, um, with, with psilocybin. Well, I, I hope that, I hope that you get that. And then, then the, uh, psilocybin the microdosing can be used to support that after that journey. I, I do agree. I think that's, I think you need the, the big journey and then, you know, everyone needs that. And then in some ways I am skeptical about the benefits of microdosing. I think this may be, yeah. you know, people who are afraid to actually step off the cliff or to open the umbrella and, you know, get into it, but they can pretend that they're hanging out with the cool kids. They're taking, psilocybin so yeah. well we're we're coming up to an hour and i don't want to keep you too much longer i'm uh how, how is santa by the way that's just fine santa went through a very bad episode of um of pneumonia uh oh when i'm we, sorry to hear that and we were in america and ancient apocalypse was launched on the 11th of november 2022 and and i we we spent about a month in america doing various shows and and, and promoting the series and during this time santa contracted a very severe bacterial infection in both lungs uh, which was she her lungs are compromised anyway it was pneumonia and she was hospitalized she it took her literally until about two weeks ago to get over it completely wow um, but well, she give is her, give her my best hope tell her i hope she recovers soon I, I i i will absolutely and it's given me it's motivated me to do something i've needed to do for a long time which is get my driving license back because i had my i had this also this problem with epilepsy and i lost my driving license but i'm entitled to get it back which means that santa wouldn't have to do all the driving anymore that I'd would be, be good yeah do you have some travels planned Yes, there's going to be a lot of travels in the in the coming year. Would it's you really, be coming to Vancouver, possibly? Uh, yes, possibly. Uh, poss possibly. I'll I'll update you on this before before too long. Okay, keep me posted because we can certainly, if you wish, you know, uh, we can certainly organize something that I think would bring a lot of people out. I really cherish the memory of the time you came through Minneapolis. It was kind of a spontaneous thing but we got it together and and that right. was a landmark event and and that was great now of course i've relocated to british columbia i managed to escape the uh develop you know the situation in the states and no no regrets of course we have many friends there but we're happy to be living in a slightly saner country 
but only slightly, not complete lunatics in charge, you know. So, so I'm afraid. I'm afraid the lunatics are running the world all over the world at the moment. This is this is the this is the this is the problem. I when I look around the world, I see very few politicians who I feel even the faintest respect or admiration for. Um, they're, they're just self-serving liars, basically. We need to get the uh, we need to get the brew inside these people, but that's that's, that's that's the answer. It's a tough thing, you know. It's it's tough to get them in that situation, and yeah. it may not work. I mean, you know, a, a shaman I respect a great deal said there are two kinds of people I will not give psychedelics to. One is schizophrenics, the other yeah. is sociopaths. Yeah, <laughs> because it doesn't work. So. Yeah, 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 their defenses are too high. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for taking time. To, this has been a great conversation. Really, really nice to talk to you again. We should do this more often, and uh, we'll definitely be crossing each other's paths sometime this year, so I look forward to seeing you in due okay. course. Okay, keep me posted, and I will do the same. Thank you so much, Graham. Thank you for listening to Brain Forest Cafe with Dennis McKenna. Find us online at mckenna.academy.